Hello and welcome to Take My Advice. I'm not using it. My name is Ollie Henderson and this is episode number 31 of my work-life podstorm and the final episode. Since this is the last episode, I thought I would look forward to the rest of 2021 and beyond and consider the future of work. Now, many of the conversations I had during series one and I'll be having in the next series, which starts in a few weeks, focus on the future of work and the interrelationship with our personal lives. The two guests I'm going to be featuring in today's highlight show are Alex Sujung Kim Pang and Alison Bourne Gates, both of whom have got fascinating insights into the way they see the future and how we respond to things that we aren't necessarily getting right at work at the moment. The first clip is from my conversation with Alex, in which we discussed the benefits of a shorter working week on various aspects of work from productivity to creativity. Hope you enjoy. Yeah, there's a century's worth of research that shows that long hours will boost productivity for individuals and organizations for short periods of time, like harvest season or tax season or you know Christmas shopping. But over the long run, sort of chronic overwork turns out to be counterproductive, right? It's bad for individuals. It makes them more likely to burn out. To It increases odds that they'll get sick. It even makes it more likely that they will cut ethical corners or cheat or not recognize, not recognize the signals of impending problems as rapidly as they would if they were well-rested. Likewise, it's bad for organizations, companies, or factories that run on overtime for six after six months are actually often less productive than, than those same companies when they are running at 40 hours a week. And I think that the, the, the challenge that we've got is that it is really easy to assume in today's economy, particularly in a service-dominated one, that the work that we do actually is not particularly like physically taxing or psychologically taxing. And we underestimate just how much energy goes into it and when we do it well and how much we benefit from recovery time. And, and layered on top of that is, is the kind of default assumption that lots of companies still have, which is that any time that's not accounted for by picking up kids or doing other things ought to belong to work. And that if you like your work, if you're passionate about your work, you should always want to do it. That is the way in which you express your affection for your employer or your job. And that makes, and it actually makes about as much sense as thinking that if you love food, you should, you should never stop eating. There, or if that's, that the, the affection and passion do, uh, should not automatically translate into sort of doing it for very long periods of time every day. I think there's a, an interesting parallel to the conversation we're just having about flow. If you look at the four stages of flow, you've got this period of focus and struggle, which is the focus time we've already discussed. Then you've got the release, which I suppose is, you know, where you build those social norms into potentially collaborating or just having, you know, social occasion. I read about, which we used to do at well, my old company, actually, Fika. We used to have Fika time, which is, a, you know, right. essentially, as the English would put it, it's tea time, yeah. cup of tea and a biscuit. Then you have that flow period. You've got the neurochemicals like dopamine, endorphins kicking in. 
But actually, it's almost as essential in order to be able to do that repeatedly is the recovery period at the end. Exactly. And I think that's, that's the pit people seem to miss out. And actually, I think, as you say, being able to achieve this state of flow over a sustained period of time in your life requires all of those four steps. So I think the rest part is essential. The, the future of work conversation is often framed with this notion that AI is going to come and take our jobs, that automation and machines are going to replace the many of the tasks that we do now. I'd see it slightly differently. We're a long way from general AI. And I think certainly automation can ultimately augment the work that we do as human beings. I think, do you see this movement? And I think it could be considered that a movement towards the shorter working week mm -hmm. as a way of optimizing the way that humans uh, think and our creativity and ultimately the, the determinant factors that will mean that we can coexist with AI. Interesting. I mean, sir, you could posit one future in which sort of increased efficiency or of the elimination of unnecessary dupli duplicative or of low priority, low value tasks is a prelude to the construction of a workplace or sort of regimes of production that are more automatable, not less. In instead, first of all, the things that I'm seeing, I think, fall more in the category of, of augmentation rather than automation. Companies spend plenty of plenty of time and devote plenty of attention to figuring out how to use technologies better in order to do five days worth of work in four, but better in this case does not mean getting rid of humans. It does mean sometimes getting rid of lower value added tasks or things that can be easily automated that free up people then to be, to work on more creative stuff, to spend more time with clients or, or what have you. And so in that respect, I think that you know, one of the things that, that the story of these companies helps reveal is that the, the narrative of robots will take our jobs or, or of AI will replace us is actually distracts our attention from or of who it is who is doing the replacing. Not to sound too Marxist, but fundamentally, these stories about robots taking our jobs are stories about capital taking, taking jobs from workers. Or if the robots are not doing anything on their own, and indeed, you can imagine futures in which you know, that, that play out very differently depending upon who it is who owns the robots, who it is who owns the automation. One of the really interesting things in the software companies that I'm looking at that have moved to four-day weeks, and these are places that previously had done like 60, 70-hour weeks, right? So these kinds of work reductions are like a huge cultural change for them, is that the people who are figuring out how to do this automation stuff, how to automate tasks, are employees themselves. In effect, they own the robots who are taking over sort of portions of their jobs. So and what this tells us is that this kind of automation is not necessarily sort of a route to the replacement of workers, but rather the elimination of boring work. What results are jobs that these people themselves like more because they've been able to craft them to allow them to focus on the stuff that they really like doing to have more time to do the stuff that is really significant versus the stuff that simply needs to be done. And all of these are good things. And so I think from a kind of 
political economy future of work standpoint, I think what this tells us is that not only is it possible to use these technologies right now to shorten working hours and make work better for everybody, but this points to a way of designing the relationship between workers, automation, and technology that makes for a better future for workers in which workers themselves have control over the sort of more control over those processes and thereby create ways of working that are better for themselves that preserve their jobs and still also yield improvements that you know for capital so end of rant So that was a short clip from my interview with Alex Sujung Kim Pang. In the next clip, you'll hear me talking to Alison Bourne-Gates. Alison is general partner of a early stage VC fund in Silicon Valley, which focuses on the future of work. She's neatly summarised what's happened in the workplace over the past 12 months and the trends that we're likely to see continue this year and beyond. She calls it the flipped workplace. I've always been a big believer that hybrid work was going to be the future, but didn't realize it would happen this quickly. And especially in here in San Francisco and Silicon Valley, because we're such a tech dominated economy, a lot of the companies headquartered here have been first to move toward a distributed or remote team. What I do appreciate is there is diversity within those distributed strategies. So you're seeing companies that say we're remote first forever. You're seeing companies that are saying, hey, instead of five floors in one office building in San Francisco, we're going to have one floor in five cities across America. And we're going to still create a centralization around those cities, but there will be more than one. Yeah. But at the end of the day, I do think, and this is a trend we saw in the consumer industry, and we're starting to see it in, in the work and enterprise industry, and in education as well, is that we are living in a network-driven society. Success is determined by network. Motivation is determined by network. Job opportunities is um, determined by network. And I think that's, that's a, we could debate about why that is, but ultimately you need to be part of a community. And if you are doing multiple jobs at once or multiple jobs over the course of your career, all of that is determined by your network. And so we need to teach people and encourage people and create systems in which they can focus on building networks that help them navigate change over time. You had a nice framework I read in one of your articles that you used to describe the future work, the five Ds. I thought it would be a useful kind of reference point, actually, because there are many different big ideas around the future of work, but cutting it down to some simple concepts can help people put into context the different steps and the relationship between each of them. Definitely. I'm a big fan of alliteration, primarily (laughs) because I have a terrible memory. So it helps me remember things. So I came up with this framework, which was initially called the three Ds. And then in the middle of COVID, kind of added two additional ones as the future was accelerated when it comes to work. So my belief is that the future of work is five things. It is digital, distributed, data-driven, dynamic, and diverse. And I'll talk a little bit more about each one of those. But I think the future of work is digital, you know, whether 
you can debate the timeline of this, but ultimately technology will enable us to automate any task that is repetitive. And a lot of physical work that we thought couldn't be automated is being automated today, as you've seen this emphasis on you know, cleanliness and bottom yeah. line. And COVID has really motivated a lot of businesses to invest in technology for automation so that they can survive long-term disruption in the way that they are. So I do believe the future of work is digital and not physical. And so we really need to plan for that when it comes to skills, our own careers, et cetera. The second is distributed. And I mean distributed in two ways, both over space. So we talk about distributed teams geographically, but also over time, meaning two things. A lot of people are, will have more than one job at once. And they will have even more jobs over the course of their lifetime. So that's the extended definition of distributed. From a data-driven perspective, as we think about even our, our personal lives, we have this concept of the quantified self, right? I mean, people know how many calories they eat, you know, how many hours they sleep, what is the quality of that sleep, you know, your size, and all of these things that we weren't aware of in, in a quantitative way before. But that still hasn't exactly been applied to work. And, you know, engineering is on the cutting edge of that where a lot of employers are able to real-time measure productivity of engineers because they can track GitHub, for example, and they know how many um, times they push new code, et cetera. And ultimately, we will, the data is available for the most part in terms of, you know, what kind of outcomes people achieve and what are the inputs to that outcome. We just don't necessarily have all the science yet to draw um, causality beyond just cor correlation, but I think that will definitely happen over time. Then when COVID hit, it became very clear that we need businesses and individuals that are more than just resilient to change, right? There's this framework called anti-fragile, the idea that if something, a structure or a system is fragile, when it breaks, it's, it never returns to its original state. Resilience is when it returns to its original state. But there's something better in which you can create a system that actually benefits from disorder and disruption. And that requires you know, agility and adaptation to change. And so the word dynamic being added to the list of Ds was really meaningful to me because you know, we're just living in this time of unprecedented uncertainty. And I reflected on my own career and kind of thought, oh, well, you know, this is just a really crazy time in COVID. And like, yes, there's never been a global pandemic before. But, you know, if you look back over the last 10 years, it's just been one thing after the other in terms of change, and it's only going to accelerate. So being dynamic and, and agile is really critical. And then finally, diversity is something that has come up and been, there's been a renewed focus on this year, and I think it's something that is really critical to navigating change. So in order to be dynamic, you have to be diverse. You need people that have different perspectives and points of view because it allows you to see the risks that are around the corner that might not seem obvious to you necessarily. Yeah. So I see that as a business imperative as well. So that was my conversation with Alison Baum-Gates. You can read the accompanying newsletters to each of those shows on Substack on my Future Work Life page. You can also hear the episodes of the Podstorm in which I recall those newsletters. Just look back through your feed for that. This Podstorm, thanks for all your support and positive feedback throughout. If you have enjoyed it, if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, I'd love it if you could give me a review on there. Please subscribe to the podcast. Series 3 is coming soon. 
And of course, check out Future World Life on Substack. Thanks again to everyone for listening. I'll see you again soon.